and then it came crashing down with a mighty eruption of earth and mud. I would have thought we were all finished for sure. Would it, mind you, the darn rock didn't land 50 paces away. The bloody tink could throw, that's for sure, but it couldn't hit the broad side of a mountain to save its ma. I went from almost mudding me own shorts to laughing like a madman in a bit of me art. The young man laughed as he leaned back into the booth with an air of ease that was common around these parts. A drink in hand and a glint in his eyes, he went on with his tale, which was supposed to be directions. So me and the lads, we start making our way towards the thing. It roars at us, and it bloody roars like nothing I ever heard before. I don't mind telling you that I went right back to fearing for me life, but my boys rushed forward and I took a knee and knocked. I've always been one of the smarter one of the boys I run with. I knock me an arrow and I steady my hand because I'm shaking like a darn leaf at this point. And I loose. I let that string go and start praying to Latander and Malar and anyone who might be listening that my arrow flies truer than it ever has before. And you know what, boys? It did. I hit that brute right into bloody knee, I did. Sure, he clubbed me laps to death, but he couldn't limp after me with a shaft deep in his leg. So I turned tail and ran. So I turned tail and ran. Gold ain't worth my life, I can't live to spend it right. He laughs to himself and takes another sip of his drink. You can tell that Master Dragonborn is almost sick to his stomach listening to the man openly admit to leaving his friends to die, but you pick up on something else. Something no one else seems to. He's been smiling at you the whole time. A slight, unnatural smile. With a concerted effort, you come to the realization that he didn't even give you the directions you asked for. So how about a hundred gold pieces for another story then? I got me a great one, but this time I'm facing down a bugbear with nothing but a dagger and Malar's own luck. Then you catch it. Quick flash of magic. Is it... a charm? Is this guy seriously trying to cast a charm person on you for a hundred gold pieces? Roll a wisdom save so you can teach him some manners. Hey there, creatures, and welcome to Encounter This a podcast exploration of the creatures from Dungeons and & Dragons and the lore that surrounds them. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Encounter This. Uh, I am, of course, your co-host, Freeman Steropes Eisten, and uh, today my uh, counterpart in this venture, James Brontes Kid, will be taking us through the creatures known as Cyclopes. That's the plural, the awkward, unfamiliar plural cyclopes of the cyclops. These are found on uh, page 45 of the Monster Manual. And tell me about the how many eyes these guys have. Well, that depends on how your Latin is. Terrible. Last episode, we've already... We, <laughs> you listen to the episode, last episode and you'll know. Okay. Not, not great. Well, it's, not well studied. <laughs> we, we can dig into that now or we can dig in that where I had planned. No, uh, you do you. I mean, this is no, your episode. No, you was, you, you go the pace good, you want to go. No, that's, that's a great segue. So let's just touch on that right now. Well, to be fair, it was a terrible segue that you're now uh, turning into a good one with your ability to move uh, to a different spot in the episode. Uh, fair. <laughs> it was a f- uh, terrible, <laughs> terrible segue. I'm willing to admit it. It was a terrible question. Uh, so, cyclopes means round eyes or circle eyes. Oh. Cyclops means a singular eye. Therefore, in Latin, the E before the S denotes a pluralization of eyes not a pack of uh, cyclops, which leads me to believe that this is a plural tantum, which is one of the things I love the most about uh, English is is how we've um, stolen 
pluralizations of words. However, right. in most contexts, this is cyclopes is the pluralization of cyclops. So a herd or pack or gaggle of cyclops are cyclopes. And that's the theory we'll be sticking to behind all this. But okay. directly translated, it just means cyclopes means two eyes, whereas cyclops means single eye. Uh, okay. And it is pronounced cyclopes, eh? I mean, that, that makes sense to me. I just hate the sound of yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do too. <laughs> I believe it's pronounced Cyclopes. I'm prepared to be corrected, and if you are waiting in the wings to correct me, strap in, because this is going to be a long episode. Uh, is it going to be as bad as uh, Rakshasa? It's going to be up there. <laughs> um, I did a post on Instagram today about Rakshasa. I saw, I yeah. Like, if you think this word's hard to pronounce, oh, I just, mean they're gonna just be, listen to the episode. Yeah. <laughs> I just mean they're going to be listening yeah. for like 45 minutes to an hour 10 of me mispronouncing Cyclopes. <laughs> And I know how much that bugs me. Uh, I was listening to a show this week where somebody mispronounced Irenes, and it drove me up the fucking wall. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. And you know what's great is that you and I uh, bounce all over the place with uh, pronunciation, but uh, I often, like, as much as that bothers you, I'm often, like, uh, biting my tongue, like, oh, I don't think he said that right. <laughs> I know it, I know he hates wrong pronunciation, but, like, but I also don't think he said that right. I was like, oh, no, I won't, I won't get into it. <laughs> You're welcome to. You're Always welcome to correct my pronunciation. All right, all right. Tell me about cyclopes. Well, pretty good. They are one-eyed giants that are isolationists by nature, and they actively work to drive off strangers in their territory. So they're you. Not far off. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> their, their eye was long rumored to cause fear in those who looked at it, but this actually turned out to be false. <laughs> Uh, okay. Yeah, so there's there's a little bit of uh, conflicting information there. So in the earlier editions of D&D, looking into a cyclops, cyclopes eye, I'm going to have a hard time with this. Um, it's fine. Just, just stick with cyclops or cyclopes. Looking into the eye of a cyclops would give you something akin to the fear effect in 5e. Later editions, and that was then like that was believed. Yeah, no, no, this was oh, a fact. Oh, yeah. no, okay, that. Oh, yeah, so okay, it, yeah, this yeah, was okay. a mechanic that was dropped. Gotcha. And then because it was dropped, it was incorporated into the five E lore as a myth, which I thought was a really oh. cool thing that wizards did. Yeah, it's kind of nifty. Yeah, Got a little throwback. So they are said to be the spawn of one of the gods of the giants, Anam, who is the chief giant deity. Uh, but other uh, races like ogres and you know storm giants and and higher end giants suspect that they're actually descendant from Othea's Trists. Othea is the wife of Anam, who had an affair with Vaprak, who is a goblinoid deity of greed and destruction. It's the patron deity of ogres and trolls. And that affair, one of the offspring, was the um, ogre race. So here we have a quick reference to the. Uh, very consistent, classic uh, infidelity of gods. Oh my god, you have no idea. This is just a brief, brief touch on. It. <laughs> I'm going to assume. Yeah, I was going to say. I'm going to assume there's a lot of Greek mythology references these guys. Like, uh, and that's that's what they did. They just slept with each other yeah. <laughs> and then got mad at each other. <laughs> Get ready. Oh, we're we're going deep into Greek mythology today. Yeah. If anyone really holds uh, 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 a a strong belief in the power of of fidelity, be prepared to be triggered. Oh, <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. We we probably should have put a warning up. <laughs> well, there it is. That's fine. But I don't, I don't think it's gonna be. I mean, you tell me if it's gonna be that. Well, uh, it's, it's a that brutal fictional. <laughs> 
uh, I'm, fictional at, at this infidelity. Point we're yeah. at fictional infidelity, yeah. So Athea also gave birth to the Formian, Firbolg, and Verbeeg races, as well as the Vodkin, uh, with another tryst uh, with, uh, oh, fuck, Ulutiu, who is the Lord of it, Ice. He's like yeah. a sentient ice. Ulutiu. Okay. We'll, we'll, yep. we'll touch back on that, but keep Boreas, the North Wind, in mind. Yeah. Oh, man. We talked about him uh, in, in the Herpes, Herpes episode in our, First in our episode. inaugural yeah. episode. Yeah. So we're going to touch on a lot of the stuff we touched on in that episode. Oh, I'm so excited now. (laughs) Uh, So the Vodkin are wood giants from second edition, and the Verbeeg are human giants, also known as human behemoths from second, third, and fourth. Okay, so we'll touch back on on, uh, this Lord of Ice, this uh, Elutu. Yeah, I mean, we won't touch on Elutu very much because it's a very much an abstract concept in the D&D pathos so it's it's very hard mm-hmm. but there we will see similarities to ulutu and boreas later okay cool so most cyclopes don't actually pay any attention to any religion or deities though they all claim that they are descendants of anam and that they are true descendants of the god of the giants but if they do find prayer or rituals they do worship uh, Grolinator, who is the giant deity of war, uh, believing in his power over other giants and because Cyclops believes. Okay, so speaking of uh, pronunciations, just in case you pronounce it right and spelled it wrong, it says Grolinator, what I'm looking at. Uh, well, let's go with Grolinator then. Okay. I think Grolinator is just my brain autocorrecting. <laughs> oh, by the way, James is a huge Terminator fan. No, wait, it's not Terminator fan. Um, You're thinking of Robocop. I am thinking Robocop. Yeah, I immediately screwed it up. Yeah. <laughs> I actually was hoping you would tell me because I couldn't remember the name yeah, of it. Huge, so huge bad. Robocop fan. Like huge, huge Robocop, Robocop fan. fan. Yeah. yeah. Which is in no way related to Grolinator. Yeah. Grolinator. <laughs> Continue, please. <laughs> so Cyclops have a few traits uh, that kind of differentiate themselves from other giants, but put them in the same vein as ogres. But they're reasonably intelligent. They tend to prefer simple lives, hunting for food and clothes, living alone in caves or in small family groups. They are herders, and they keep animals with them at night, sealing the entrance to their cave, making it like a barn. So they will roll a giant stone in the way of the entrance to their cave. Oh, cool, yeah. They tend to make their da- their lairs within a day's travel or so of other cyclopes so they can trade or seek mates. But they don't use money for trade even though they do value gold and shells and other colorful, glittery objects. So we see some uh, diminutive aspects of the ogre in there as well. They're unwise and slow to learn, and they seem to be pretty steadfast in their ways, uh, But they and they can be tricked by clever foes. Mm-hmm. They can be pacified with obvious and grandiose uses of magic, similar to ways we're touched upon, like they're they're enamored by colors and glitter. Uh, and if tricked, their sense of pride will cause them to react with a bloodthirsty violence seeking vengeance. <laughs> uh, I'm glad I, I was sitting here on a question. I'm glad I waited. Uh, but uh, the question still stands. Are these, like, uh, without really peeking too much at what their, say, alignment would be, um, you know, are they aggressive creatures are they a little bit more mundane a little more more a little bit more chill like than say compared to etons they're on the aggressive side of the spectrum i'll, I'll just give it to you they're, right. they're chaotic neutral okay so they're quick to react but they don't want to be put in a situation where they can react right they already seem a bit more civil 
turning their cave into like a barn and that sort of thing. Uh, they seem a, bit, a little bit more civil, if not intelligent, than compared to say like the Etans. So you know, we're talking about uh, giants here, right? Yeah, we're this is a proper giant. And there's like a uh, you know, giants have a they're they're quite a variety of of spectrums when it comes to giants you know not all of them are evil necessarily and uh but and there's varying degrees of power and intelligence that's for sure but um, i'd sort of assumed that uh cyclopes would be close to being roped into with uh, ogres and ettons but not nearly as hyper aggressive or or nearly as stupid but if if not necessarily intelligent uh, and they are they're they're definitely that kind of missing link between like a um like a hill giant and an ogre like they really mm-hmm. really do fill that place in the D D. uh gotcha okay all right so you know if they come at you with their bloodthirsty vengeance they are a huge threat because of their size and their strength certainly though yeah. they are one of the smaller giants they're only 12 feet tall they weigh about 540 kilograms on average or uh 1200 pounds about the weight mm-hmm. of an elephant or T-Rex, <laughs> uh, or the weight of a blue whale's tongue, which is absolutely fucking mind-blowing to me. <laughs> <laughs> My God. <laughs> That's so Can good. you imagine that a T-Rex weighs the same as an existing animal's tongue today? Like Tongue. Yeah, that's so good. That is so good. So visceral and well, specific. The, the, blue whale, the blue whale is, you know. Well, I think it's the largest ever mammal. Yeah, I'm for sure. And they are huge. Anyway, the 5e lore. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, these guys are huge. They're the size of a blue whale's tongue. Is, that's amazing. Yeah, it is incredible. Uh, so in 5e, it actually paints a pretty humble picture of the Cyclopes. That, <laughs> <laughs> that I really I really like the picture that it paints of, of Cyclopes. Uh, usually I find them portrayed as brutes and uh i'm i'm guilty of this even in my home games is portraying them as like kind of mindless brutes but uh, they seem to be pretty simple creatures Mm -hmm. with simple motivations simple you know designs on life they just want to herd their sheep and and kind of be left alone and it seems like in pop culture they're most often portrayed as as just terrible and threatening and and horrible Mm -hmm. well you know my current my my gut perspective is that yes they are per, uh, perceived as that um uh historically i would i would be i would guess they're perceived as a, an obstacle to uh you know sort of get get by um in pursuit of something greater and then like current pop culture basically does that without elaborating so they they come across as as uh, something terrible without you know any effort to emphasize that they are just s- simply an obstacle or, or a challenge or something like that to, to get to something else. Right. Um, and you, you're not wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll get into it at the end, but 5e actually paints a pretty accurate picture of how they're depicted in, in the rest of uh, culture. They're, they're very okay. civil and meek, but very, very quick to anger. And their anger right. is is brutal and and unrelenting. Right. Okay. But they first appeared in the Monster Manual two in nineteen eighty three by Gary Gygax and the crew over at TSR, and they are definitively based on the Cyclops of Greek legend. Sounds about right. Yeah, it does until we get into Greek legend. <laughs> so let's just let's just dig right into Greek lore. The first appearance of them that I've been able to find is in our boy Hesiod's Theogony. 
mm-hmm. who we also talked about in Harpies, and that's going to be a common theme throughout this whole show, as we previously discussed. Yeah, he states the cyclop cyclopes were born of Uranus, who is the sky, and Gaia, Mother Earth. They were three of eighteen of their children. The first twelve were the Titans. The last three were the Hect on Cherise. <laughs> Why did I even write that down? I was really hoping you'd be able, you would you did the research in that one. I tried. <laughs> That's actually oddly enough, it's a it's a summon in Final Fantasy thirteen. Okay. Um, I'm sure it has nothing to do with this, but I've always wondered how the fuck to pronounce it, and I still don't know. We're just going to call them the Hundred Handers. They were said to have had a hundred hands and fifty heads. The middle Perfect. children were the three Cyclopes. They were, a quote from the Theogony is, Then Gaia bore the Cyclopes, who have very violent hearts. Brontes, Thunder, Sterapes, Lightning, and the strong-spirited Argus, Bright. Those who gave thunder to Zeus and fashioned the Thunderbolt. These were like the gods in other regards. But only one eye was set in the middle of their foreheads. Strength and force and contravances were their works. So they were they were the ones who created Zeus's iconic thunderbolt. Were these three Cyclopes born of Gaia and Uranus, who were the two original creators in, in Greek mythology? Now that is a cool fact. Yeah, really, really cool. The original Cyclopes or Cyclopes created Zeus's thunderbolt. Yeah. That's awesome. So one was the sound, one was the light, and one was the physical object of lightning, which was really cool, I thought. That's wicked. Yeah. Uh, and during the War of the Titans, where uh, Zeus usurped his father Kronos, the, the Hundred Handers, who were ended up being banished to something akin to um, Tartarus, but pre-Tartarus. You know, Tartarus was only made after yep. the Titans. Um, so pre-Tartarus, the Hundred Handers were, were banished there because Uranus thought they were abominations. They fought alongside with Zeus, and that's when the Cyclop, Cyclopes gave him his iconic weapon, and they sided with him in that war to establish his rule over the cosmos. Right. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. Very I like that a lot. akin to the, uh, the, the birth of the Cyclops in uh, D&D religion, whereas, you know, just replace Uranus for Amanon and Gaia for Othea. Yeah, it's been a while since I feel like we, we touched into some Greek mythology, and I love it. Yeah, well, don't don't <laughs> don't get ready to pull that shoot yet, because our next is <laughs> takes place in Homer. This is probably the most iconic uh, representation uh, of the Cyclops in, in cultural yep. history. So, in our boy Homer's Odyssey... Odysseus describes his encounter with a cyclops called Polyphemus. And uh, Polyphemus. Polyphemus? No. I actually don't know. It's Polyphemus. <laughs> okay. I looked that one up. <laughs> Perfect. Polyphemus. Uh, meaning abounding in song and legends. So he is literally, you know, large in legends and song, which is so right. indicative of what's about to happen. <laughs> Okay. It's like calling a mythical creature mythical creature. Like Homer was <laughs> Homer was so clever, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Like he's he's just uh, so like I really think he was just like super sarcastically clever. Um, and I, I think it. you'll understand why by the time we get through the Odyssey here. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so he describes, uh, Odysseus describes his encounter with Polyphemus to his host, the Phoenicians, before his journey home to Ithaca. Phi-ashan, I believe is how that's pronounced. I watched like three videos and okay. they all kind of emphasized it a little bit different. Okay. So not not, Phen- not Phoenicians. Phi-ashan? Phi-ashans, yeah. I believe Phoenician is a nation in, it was an yeah. actual nation in Africa, whereas the Phiashans were a th- fictitious nation in Greece. Okay. All they, right. were, they were the neighbors <laughs> to Ithaca. But Polyphemus is described as a savage, man-eating giant. He returns to his cave one night with his flocks to find Odysseus's men there raiding his stores. Polyphemus, uh, Polyphemus scoffs at their hospitality, which was huge back then. They, uh, Odysseus asked for hospitality, and theoretically you're supposed to just grant it. Um, okay. So Polypheus scoffs at Odysseus' request for hospitality and then immediately eats two of Odysseus' men. Damn. The next morning before leaving to graze his sheep, he immediately eats two more of them. Wow. Yeah. What a dick. <laughs> so the giant returns again that night and eats two more of them. And then having drawn the line at six goddamn men, Odysseus finally decides to act and he offers Polyphemus a very, very strong wine and gets him turned up. Uh, okay. I believe this is how the kids pronounce it. Turned? Is that is that correct? Turned? Turned, turned up. Uh, back, back home, we call it getting ripped. Getting ripped. There we go. That's, that's what we used to call it, too. Uh, so Polyphemus, you know, in his drunken state, asks Odysseus what his name is, and Odysseus gives him his snarkiest fuck answer of nobody. I, I don't have the Greek translation of it because I cannot pronounce it, but it translates to no. Okay, right. So after <laughs> the Cyclops falls asleep, Odysseus jabs him in the eye with a fire-hardened wooden stake. Oof. <laughs> oh, it's fire-hardened. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah. So the next morning when Polyphemus, uh, the, the now blind Polyphemus, gets up to let his sheep out, he, uh, he he feels the backs of the sheep. He like pets them as they're on their way out to ensure that the uh, Odysseus' men are not escaping by riding the sheep. But lo and behold, they're pulling some straight up Mission Impossible shit, and they're strapped to the bellies of the sheep. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, it's so good. <laughs> so Polypheus eventually realizes that they've escaped, and he yells out to his fellow giants uh, and Cyclopes for help. And they ask him who stabs out his eye, and he says nobody. And at this point, they're they're like, uh, maybe you should pray. Like that, they clearly <laughs> think that it's a divine power that is blind. Uh, Polyphemus. Oh my god, that is so. Good. That's what I mean. Like Homer was. Homer just thought he was so clever. Oh man, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, no disrespect. I I, I love it. It's just it's so sure. so like surface clever that it's not even. Like once right. translated, it's not it's not even funny anymore, you know. So as Odysseus uh, sails away, he flexes to Polyphemus and uh, lets him know his name. He calls back. He's like, "My name is isn't nobody. It's Odysseus." Uh, so Polyphemus prays to his father, who just happens to be Poseidon, you know, the goddamn lord of the ocean. That's convenient. Yeah. Well, what's not convenient <laughs> is that Poseidon, instead of sicking the Kraken on them or a tidal wave, decides to just fucking throw a rock at Odysseus's ship, who they managed to steer around. <laughs> that's kind of the end of this bit in the odyssey which i don't really understand it all. <laughs> oh my god you, you had to assume that a lot of these stories were were just like you know uh fables of some kind like he teach you a story or something right it's like or teach you a lesson of some kind you would think so but uh i don't know <laughs> 
And later in the Odyssey, Homer goes on to describe Polyphemus, and I need to make it clear that I'm paraphrasing here, as the greatest of all Cyclopes and a solitary shepherd who had his heart on lawlessness and was regarded as a monster and savage. So Homer retroactively paints this guy as even more of a villain than he already was by eating a whole bunch of Ulysses' crew, or Odysseus' crew. Right. I mean, why did why did Odysseus wait till six to do something exactly? He, if it if there's not that vast on detail, he sounds like a bit of a monster himself. Like two to two to five are are expendable. <laughs> but that I mean, sixth I think one, he was just trying to figure out a plan. Right. Like, so, uh, so I don't know. I, I guess I didn't make it clear, but Polyphemus would roll a rock in uh, in the way of his cave to close his cave off during the day while he was right. raising his sheep, and then again at night. Uh, to keep Odysseus' men in there, so they were they were technically sure. prisoners. But like, how did how did he get a hold of the the two men each day? Like, did he just like storm them and they couldn't do anything, and he just grabbed two and ate them? And like, it definitely seems yeah. that way. like Odysseus <laughs> had to get him drunk in order to stab yeah. his eye out. So that's a, they were they were some, definitely out. some holes in that story, but I love it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we're going to get a little bit deeper into Greek history than we've ever gone, and we're probably going to touch on some surface stuff that doesn't really need to be touched on, but I, I really wanted to create some context for what was happening when these people wrote the works they're, they're writing. Hmm. Specifically, we're going to start with Euripides, who is one of three ancient Greek tragedy tragedies. <laughs> the other one was Sophocles, who is famous for Oedipus Rex. Oh my god. Yeah. Sorry, i just having a flashback of when we first talked about Tragedians. Tragedians, yeah. Tragedians. We still can't say it. Tragedians. The next one is Aeschylus, who's famous for Arestia. Who I'm reasonably sure was mentioned in Harvey's as well. I believe so, yeah. I believe Arestia specifically was mentioned in Harvey's. Yeah, it might be, yeah. But if you're a fan and a listener, you know, let us know. Let us know what we said in the past. So it's it's only these three uh, tragedians who have any play that survives in full from the specific era of Greek history. Okay. So Euripides is one of my favorite of all time, uh, and one of his most popular and my favorite work of Euripides is Medea. And it's based on the myth of Jason and Medea, uh, who is his wife, focusing specifically on Medea. Is that like Jason and the Argonauts, Jason? Okay. Yeah, that Jason. Sure. Yeah. And Medea is not the Tyler Perry character. Okay. No. <laughs> I don't know if you know who that is. I'm, I'm going to go uh, go out on a limb and say no, but I cannot factually, definitively there's, say there's, no. There, there's, a, there's a following out there somewhere that definitely got, got that reference, but continue. Okay. Well, I mean, let, let's find <laughs> out. Uh, so she was a former princess of Colchis and the wife of Jason, who eventually leaves her for a Corinthian princess. Medea then decides to track down and kill Jason's new wife and their children before taking shelter in Athens. To be clear, Medea is the heroine of this book, and Euripides gave her the line, Sooner I would stand three times to face their battles, shield in hand, than bear one child. Oof. To put that in perspective, this was about 431 BC, and the, f- the idea of a woman who didn't want to be a mother was completely unfathomable at the time, and this oh, collectively yeah. blew the minds of the Greek people. Okay. Like, this, this broke society, that this idea that a woman would rather be a warrior than, than a mother. Is that why Jason left her for a new wife? Was because she wouldn't bear children? Do we know? I did not look okay. 
too deep into that, and I do not remember Medea well enough to comment on that, but I believe um, Jason fell in love with the Corinthian princess while he was on his adventures right. with the Argonauts. I gotta love the classic, um, and I say love in a very chastising way, uh, the classic idea of, like, you know, man goes off and cheats on his wife, leaves her because he fell in love with, you know, let's presume someone younger and more beautiful, and the revenge tactic of the wife is to kill uh, the wife and children, the new wife and children, rather than the guy who actually did her wrong. You know, it's it's really common. Like, it happens to Agamemnon. Yeah, too. but, like, could it be a more uh, patronizing male concept? <laughs> like, the guy gets away with it, you know, totally. You know, it, jealousy goes, you know, uh, in the direction that still saves his life. It's, oh, my God, what a trope. Yeah, in Agamemnon's case, he's actually the one who ends up dying. And, and oh, really? And his wife gets away okay. with it. Yeah, I mean, his wife gets her comeuppance when their their original child, the original hair, Agamemnon's hair, comes yeah. back and kills them and murders them. But uh, you know, that's not really the point. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Cyclops is is the play of Euripides, which we're examining today. <laughs> not not Medea, not the history of yeah, Agamemnon. Yeah, okay, sure. Um, so it's something called a satyr play. A satyr play. Okay. So it is a body raunchy burlesque ish play featuring satyrs, which we'll cover in a later episode, mm-hmm. brazen sexuality, mock drunkenness, sight gags, and slapstick comedy. So these were all common elements of the satyr play. Right. So these were tra- known as tragic comedies. So they would be very sad, but have this really kind of surface comedy throughout. Them. Right. And even back then, they were decidedly lowbrow. <laughs> Isn't that funny how w- way back then, even then, they were like, ah, we got to have some lowbrow. <laughs> yeah, it really great. is. Yeah. Um, so beyond the name of that, uh, this is kind of a retelling of uh, Hesiod's uh, story of Brontes and, and Stropes and Ar- Ar- Arges. Um, but Euripides then goes on to make many more references through to Cyclopses throughout his play, even calling Argos the city built by Cyclops. All right. So we'll we'll come back to why he calls it the city built by Cyclopes. All right. Uh, next up is Callimachus, who is from Cyrene, a colony of Greece in ancient Libya. I think it's really hard to tell because they were super bad at maps back mm-hmm. then. Uh, but it's credited as being ancient Libya. Uh, and Callimachus was also a scholar at the Library of Alexandria, which is probably the coolest title anyone's ever had. Uh, so Callimachus, his, his job, his, his role was the was a scholar at the Library of Alexandria. Yeah, so he was a student. He read the books. He copied the books. He did all that. Uh, Anyway, he also talks about the Hesiodic Cyclopes brothers. This time, he reframes them as assistants to the smith god Hephaestus, and they were actually the ones who made uh, Artemis's and Apollo's bow, quiver, and arrows. Cool. Which play a huge role in Greek mythology. I remember... I don't know if you've ever played the God of War games, but I'm pretty sure at one point you, you get either Artemis or Apollo's bow. You know, like you, and Hephaestus might be a, a god you end up killing or something like that. That's, that's the beauty of that game is you just go around killing gods in like oh, that's cool. the coolest fashion, not like in a really lame. Isn't that a Roman game? Uh, it, it sort of bleeds the two together. It t- I mean, Roman and Greek mythology sort of bleed together, right? And they have different names for the same gods, that sort of thing. Um, but it definitely leans more on the Greek side. He is the he is the Spartan. Oh, okay. He is you know, and by the end of the first game, spoiler alert from forever ago, he becomes the god of war by killing the god of war by killing Ares. 
It takes his oh, place, okay, yeah. Gotcha. And along the way, he basically just kills god after god after god or defeats them in battle. It's awesome. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I'm pretty. I'm right yeah, pretty sure you kill Hephaestus at some point, and you you definitely obtain one of those bows. Yeah. So instead of actually being made by Hephaestus, like it says in the Greek lore, Callimachus reframed it as them being made by the Cyclades. Okay. Cool. Um, he also states for some reason that they made a horse trough for Poseidon, which I don't really understand. <laughs> but I think, I think, I think, I think, and I'm ready to be corrected that Poseidon is the one who trained the horses for Helios. Oh, yeah. Okay. I wonder if that ties in uh, weirdly. Uh, I, I, what was the episode we were talking about? Uh, the hippocampus. Actually, I actually think it was the unicorns. Or the hippocampus was like that underwater horse. It was like half horse, half Sort of yeah. fish, yeah. I wonder if that that ties in somewhere with Poseidon and the horse and, and that training. It it must mm. like hippocampus has got to be an ancient yeah. Greek word. But to take it back to the Romans, we're going to touch on Virgil's iconic work, the Aeneid, where the hero Aeneas directly follows in the footsteps of Odysseus. This is one hundred percent plagiarism at its best, because <laughs> I think it's a better book than the Odyssey. Um, so Aeneas survives an encounter with a sea monster where he comes to the land of the Cyclopes, where they live and are literally verbatim described as being in size and shape of Polyphemus, but there were a hundred of them. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so in true to plagiaristic form, Aeneas also narrowly escapes Polyphemus. Yeah. And then to take it even further back, later in the poem, Virgil goes back to describe Brontes and Steropes, uh, the Hesotic Cyclops, and their brother, a bare-limbed Pyrasimon. And they were the assistants of the smith god Vulcan, who forged thunderbolts for Jupiter, a chariot for Mars, and the armor for Minerva. Uh, Okay, so this is I I, can see in your notes like it's that's where already we're bleeding Greek and Roman mythology. Vulcan being Hephaestus, Jupiter being Zeus. Yeah. So Mars is Ares and Minerva is Athena. So they've they've all got like the whole Roman pantheon is based off the Greek pantheon, Mm -hmm. and it all came after greek right um so the roman pantheon i don't know how familiar you are with ancient history but rome is literally a descendant of troy so right uh aeneas is virgil wrote and the aeneid for the trojans after homer homer wrote the odyssey so homer wrote the odyssey is like this victorious story after the trojan war um where the where the trojans fled to what is now modern day rome so Virgil, a true Roman, decided that he was going to write a poem for Romans. So this is a made-up history of Rome after the war, except Aeneas is Odysseus, but he was a Trojan soldier who happened to lose the war. Right. Crazy. You're, you're not wrong. Straight straight plagiarism, eh? <laughs> it, is, it is straight plagiarism. Most of it is straight plagiarism, yeah. but eventually you get on to some other stuff. But I think the Aeneid is a fantastic mm. epic. If you're in the market for an epic, I highly recommend the Aeneid. I would recommend it over the Odyssey and the Iliad because uh, I, th- I think hom- hom- Homeratic, Homeric mm. uh, is very hard to read these days, whereas a, a Virgil's Aeneid, the Latin translates really cleanly. Sure. English. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. And then the last and final one is Nonus. He was a Greek epic poet similar to Homer's. I say Homer's with an S because I do not believe they were a single person. Fair enough. Of Hellenized Egypt in the Imperial Roman Empire. 
He was born in a city called Panopolis, or Akmim today, oh. and probably lived in about the 5th century BC. We totally talked about that. We did. Yeah. We got a little bit of foreshadowing in our last episode. Yeah. Uh, all right, cool. So tell me about this fella. So he wrote an epic called the Dionysica. Oh, wow. <laughs> Try that again. <laughs> Dionysica. <laughs> okay. Dionysica, which is an epic in 48 books and the largest surviving poem from antiquity at 20,426 lines. Oof. Lines. Yeah. Yeah, lines. Yeah. He, he, it was composed in the Homer, Homeric dialect, mm -hmm. um, the language of Homer. It's now known today as Epic Greek. And he used Homer's uh, signature dactylic hexameter, which is a rhyming scheme that was used in the original Odyssey and Iliad. Mm -hmm. So if if I've done my math correctly, which I, I think I have, but I'm ready to be corrected, that this was written 300 years after the Odyssey. Okay. So I would like you to picture writing something in the language that was prevalent 300 years ago. So just a little bit past Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Imagine trying to write something in Shakespeare's words. Mm -hmm. Like that, that is, that is absolutely mental and so brilliant and so tough and challenging. Right. You would literally have to be fluent in a different language. Not to mention that he was fluent in a different language because he grew up in the Roman empire in the city of Egypt. Mm. So he would have been fluent in Egyptian, Rome, well, Latin at the time, and this Homeric Greek. Right. Like, there's no way he could have written it if he wasn't fluent in this Homeric Greek. That's pretty gnarly. It's, it's incredibly impressive yeah. because it would have been an ancient language even by their standards mm -hmm. at this point. But the poem itself uh, describes the life of Dionysus. Uh, particularly, Cyclops are mentioned in a war where the Cyclopes joined forces with uh, Dionysian troops against the Indian king Diriatus in book 28. So the, the whole Odyssey is the Odyssey, the life story of Dionysus. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was really interesting, and it's the only surviving work by Nonus. There's nothing else by him. He kind of just faded into obscurity after that. There's not really anything known about him other than what we just covered. Right. Yeah, fair enough. So what, what we've got here is... Let, let, get, yeah, re, let's, let's do a timeline here. <laughs> All right, so Hesiod writes the Theogony. Yeah. Homer writes the Odyssey. Mm -hmm. Nonus writes the Dionysica. Right. Euripides writes a satire of Homer's Odyssey. Mm -hmm. And then Virgil writes the Aeneid. Amazing. <laughs> we get all this from Cyclops. Which is, uh, <laughs> which is the Aeneid is essentially revisionist history. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's awesome. I, I wish we were doing a podcast just on this. <laughs> so good. <laughs> I mean, if they pay us enough on Patreon, yeah. probably we'll just totally go um, off topic. And then and later, <laughs> then even later, or sorry, before Virgil, before uh, Euripides, or after Euripides, Callimachus writes another revisionist history, but it's on Hesiod only, not Homer's right. Cyclops. Crazy. And then we're going to take a swift dip into a, another culture that's not really related at all, and it is the Tepegaz, mm -hmm. which is a Turkic word meaning high hill, and gauze, which means eye. So this is a, a legendary creature from Turkish folklore that only had one eye in its forehead, and it is a giant ogre described in the book of Didi Korkut by the Okhuz Turks. Mm-hmm. There is no way I pronounced that correctly, but I promise you, I tried my best, and I spent like 20 minutes. <laughs> it's part of our jam, not pronouncing these things correctly. Yeah. 
So the Oghuz are a group of Turkic people who had a tribal confederation in Central Asia around the 8th century. And I believe that's the 8th century AD. Mm -hmm. uh, they were also known as the Oghuz Yabgu state, uh, which would eventually become Muslim Turkmens and then devolving further into just Turkmen um, and then eventually into Turkmenistan. All right. Uh, or, or Turkey today, I guess. <laughs> Right. I guess I can take it all the way yeah. to modern day. Um, so, Didi Korkut is the main character, and he is a heroic legend who tells 12 stories. And this was definitely written down after the Turks converted to Islam, um, because it's written about how good the way of life and the the cultural traditions of the Oghuz people were. His Didi Korkut was an Oghuz. He does still often portray uh, Muslims as the good characters. And Didi himself is a is a bard who uh, tells the stories, and that's how these twelve stories are linked together. Okay. Even through that, the Tepegaz is thought to be based on the Cyclops in the Homer's Odyssey, but it has a hard skin that no sword can cut and no arrow can pierce. And half of the Oguz's heroes up to this point are killed trying to slay the Tepegaz. Mm. And finally, it's killed by its half-brother, Basat, by striking it in the eye. Yeah. So there are definitely some similarities to Homer's Odyssey there. So wait, no one went for the eye? Nobody went for the eye. <laughs> Nobody. Nobody's like, ah, his skin can't can't be hit or pierced or slashed or what? But, but let's keep trying. <laughs> These aren't portrayed as like true stories. They're, right. they're portrayed as folklore with a meaning to right. them. Right, yeah. Like a fable. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, like a fable, like like cautionary tales. And our last creature we're going to really dip into is a legendary tribe from northern Scythia called the Ari Maspi. What what Scythia? Who where is Scythia? I have no idea how to explain it to you, but it's near the Caucasus Mountains. Do you know where okay. Gregoria is or Georgia? It's kind yeah, of in that yeah, region yeah, okay. of northern Vaguely, Rome. Yeah. Okay. It will be on the map that I that we put in the show notes sure. that shows where uh, Libya is. Mm -hmm. It's 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 in that map. Gotcha. Um, like they're they're farther north. They're kind of locked by by mountains. It's kind of um, when you think of Saxon, mm -hmm. it's kind of that region. Gotcha. Saxony, sorry. Right. It's kind of that region. Um, and the most famous tale of the Armapazi was <laughs> lost a lost work called the Armaspius by an author named Aristius. And all we know is that it is a tale of the Armapazi, this one-eyed tribal people, dealing, uh, trying to fool Boreas, the North Wind, into getting past his gold-guarding griffins. So there are a lot of words in that sentence, <laughs> I did not know how to make them work better. So Boreas has a set of gar uh, griffins who act as guard dogs for his gold. Right. And the Armapazi are trying to trick Boris into letting them pass. Yeah. And that is all we know about this work. Like, it has right. lost the time. But the ar the artwork of the Armapazi trying to trick their way around the Griffins really still exists. And it, it, it extends pretty frequently, but no written word of it is around. And that's why I thought I'd mention them. And so these were, okay, so the connection for Psychos is that the, the, the Ar Ari must be, uh, they themselves were a tribe of one-eyed people. Yeah. Exactly, but it was definitely written after Hesiod's Theogony. Wow, that's uh, that's a lot. Oh. <laughs> that's a lot. It's a lot of uh, yeah. a lot of hard things to pronounce <laughs> consistently. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, that's um, 
But that's awesome. That's super cool. Yeah. Man. It's it, it was a lot of fun to research mm. these guys. And in my research, I I've come to the conclusion that the 5e Cyclopes aren't particularly different from that of Legend. So they seem to be mostly Homer and Virgil's Cyclopes with a touch of the Hesiodic in there. So they are herders. They are one-eyed. They are quick to anger. They are large. They are strong. They're vicious. But they're also born of a god, which right. comes from Hesiod, yeah. I think. A couple of fun facts. Oh, I love a fun fact. In 4th edition, they were fake creatures. Oh, Really? Uh, I also think the art for 4E is the best, but they're really depicted as brutes. They're really um, almost Beholder-esque in the 4th edition art. Uh, yeah, take a look at it right now. Yeah, totally. Uh, in the Odyssey, Polyphemus was never specifically described as being monocular. However, it has been extrapolated that because Odysseus only stabbed him in one eye, that he wasn't right, because blinded him. Yeah, or th- that that he fa- was in mm-hmm. fact one-eyed. <laughs> well, that's some reliable information. <laughs> it's like interpreting right. the Bible. <laughs> Just do what you, do what pleases you. <laughs> exactly. Um, so Euripides touched on the city built of Cyclops. What he meant was a real type of architecture known as Cyclopean masonry, and it is a type of stonework made from massive lime bol- limestone boulders that are roughly fitted together with no use of mortar usually found in the Mycenaean area and Mycenaean okay. architecture. Mycenaean. Yeah, Mycenaean. Mycenaean. I think you said that, right? Mycenaean, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, as we touched on in Nothics, stereopsis is the ability to see with two eyes, but the information is hidden from each eye individually, which I thought oh. was a really cool condition that modern-day people can be um, suspect. Oh, crazy. Yeah. So you can see from each eye independently, and your brain processes the information Ooh, independently. That's, and that's, that's crazy. Right. And the theory behind the origin of the Cyclops is that the central nasal cavity of an extinct type of dwarf elephant, extinct type of dwarf elephant, could be seen as an eye cavity. Oh. That being said, there is also a birth defect that causes a human to be born with a single central eye, but it is below the nose. Whoa. Yeah. I bet you that's rare. It's got to be. Because I don't think that's the root of it, because the dwarf elephant, the eyes above where the jawline clearly is, but the birth defect is clearly below the nose, and I've never seen or heard of a cyclopes, cyclops being depicted as having the eye below the nose. Yeah, gnarly. So we got a couple of honorable mentions here. Love these. We have uh, Mr. Scott mm-hmm. Summers. <laughs> the one and only Cyclops uh, that we need to know. Uh, there's Baylor, who is a giant of Irish mythology, not to be confused with the one mm-hmm. of Greek mythology. Isn't Baylor also in 5e? That, Can be, am I wrong about that? I think it's a pit fiend. Um, Dajjal is an Islamic figure with similarities to the Antichrist, but only okay. has one eye. I don't know why Odin was mentioned, but he's also only got one eye. <laughs> I mean, he's missing an eye. He's not like, he's not yeah. monocular. <laughs> he was specifically listed in the Wikipedia article, and I had to That's put him in so there. so funny. Oh, yeah, all Odin's similar to Cyclops. No, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> then we get to my favorites, the Cylon Centurion from Battlestar Galactica, which are pretty great. Nerd. Uh, you think that's a nerd. Uh, Gagain 
from Gojira uh, is a one-eyed giant lizard with two big fins on his back and hooked for hands. And you can fucking believe he'll come up again in the hooked, hooked, hooked horror, horror episode. Yeah, okay, you're doing that one. <laughs> uh, Starro of DC Comics, which is a giant one-eyed uh, starfish that falls from the sky and throws little tiny versions of himself at all of the heroes and takes control of them mentally. <laughs> okay. Uh, Kang and Kodos from The Simpsons. And I love this last one. This last one's gold. <laughs> well, before we get to that, we all have to. We we cannot forget Matt Groening's other Cyclops, uh, Tallulah Leela. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and then the one you've been waiting for, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> the one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people leader. <laughs> so good what a stupid thing <laughs> what is it absolutely is but it came to my mind while i was writing this. oh i'm so glad i did that's so good <laughs> <laughs> i'm glad holy sweet jesus <sighs> well that was a yeah, uh I mean, uh a lot of talk about one eye but i can tell you what i've also got one of <laughs> i've only got one beer left <laughs> I do not uh, have one beer left, but I do have one I've just opened, and it is the classic, classic, the classic blackmail. Actually, hitting the ad break <laughs> in the middle this time. Uh, we're doing it right. We're doing it according to the document we're both reading. Um, everything's official. <laughs> everything's above board this time. <laughs> Homunculus is a mess. Board. This one's on top. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it wasn't your fault. I'm pretty sure your computer was. That's true. Yeah, I did. We had some. We had some technical issues recording, and we had some technical issues pre-recording. Well, and you lost the whole. Oh my god! Let's not get started on that. I was so so annoyed by that. Uh, (laughs) But you know what? I am going to get started on this delicious, delicious black. Oh, I'm going to get started on it, and it's going to get it's going to get started on my tongue and on my (laughs) senses. The old. For those of you who may or may not know, uh, and those of you who are joining us for the first time, we are not sponsored by Strange Fellows Blackmail Stout in Vancouver, the most delicious blackmail of stouts. That is, those are words to live by. <laughs> uh, yep, uh, we we like to um, uh, drink one of these, if you haven't figured it out by now, every episode. Uh, at the very least, uh, with the exception of that one time I uh, didn't know I had four in the back of my fridge and had to drink a different Strange Fellows beer, um, which, by the way, we received so much hate mail on. So uh, they, the listeners were, oh, it was uproarious. Oh, yeah. Um, Instagram got lit. lit <laughs> oh, yeah. It got so much heat. They, they were, uh, I think there was a, a change.org as, uh, thing to, to get me to quit the show over it where the show wouldn't be the show without you so knock it off change.org yeah. um, uh no blackmail stout is the uh it's the stout to to to, to, ha- to taste all right well strange fellows uh uh notwithstanding uh mechanics me- mechanically mechanically what do we have for the cyclope- Cyclopes? Fuck, only Jesus. Cyclopes. Right? It is. It's a hard. In the ass. It is a hard word to wrap. We're so used to saying it, just Cyclops. You're trying to say, add Cyclopes. And then you're like, oh, tr- just do it right. Cyclopes. Nah, fumbling everywhere. Yeah, and write us in, write in and correct us if we're wrong. But that's what we're sticking <laughs> with. Uh, Cyclopes are a pretty decent 
creature. They are a CR6 uh, sitting around 138 hit points with an AC of 14 natural okay. armor. Huge. Huge. Giants, which, oh. you know, we, we kind okay. of expected. I mean, yeah, I did expect... Huge, I didn't quite expect, but but I like it. You didn't. You thought well, they were going to be large. I mean, I just just yeah. Well, tell, I bro. mean, now now that now that you say it, and then I think about the size you actually gave. Like I'm like that obviously stands to reason, but it didn't just didn't occur to me. Uh, I just sort of assumed they were the same size as Netten, just without the two heads. Yeah. Oh right. Uh, but uh, uh, I think they're larger than Pathfinder. If that makes sense. Ah, well, I mean, whatever. I don't feel bad. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like that actually. I, I like that they're huge, uh, and actually, I, I like that they're ACs fourteen right out of the gate because, especially with their huge, like they're they're a bit easier to hit. That's a big health pool. Uh, it's a decent yeah, health pool, but uh, sure. yeah, I like that they're even as a, at a CR six. Those those yeah, numbers add sure. up to me. Uh, they are chaotic neutrals. We mm-hmm. touched on before. They only speak one language, and it's mm-hmm. giant. Skills to touch on, they have a 22 strength, adding up to a plus 6. They have an 8 intelligence at a minus 1, and a wisdom of 6 at a minus 2. The rest of the um, stats are okay. pretty straightforward. Con at 20 plus 5, sure. et cetera, et cetera. Nothing else yeah. really stands out. They have one absolutely fantastic ability that makes mm-hmm. me laugh every time I read it. And it is called Poor Death oh, Perception. That's great. They have... Disadvantage on any attack rolls against a target more than 30 feet away, which is super accurate to any of you who have taped an eye closed right. or tried to play a racing game with only Let one eye. <laughs> uh, depth perception is not a lie. Let me ask you a quick question going back. I see, uh, I wonder if you know this. Was Poseidon one eyed? No. Okay, because if he was, that would explain why he missed the boat with the fucking rock. <laughs> it would, but as far as I know, Poseidon is two eyes. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, well, at least according goes, to Percy Jackson, where Kenneth Branagh plays him. There goes oh, no, that shit, theory. Shit, I am so sorry. It is Keith McKidd who plays Poseidon in Percy Jackson. Whoa. Again, I'm not upset. Just, <laughs> whoa, just avoided some serious hate mail from that oh. one Percy Jackson fan that who doesn't listen to the show yet. Yeah, not to mention Kenneth Branagh, who would have been like, I wouldn't have been seen dead in that film. Well... <laughs> That's probably true. Uh, anyway, poor depth perception. <laughs> poor depth perception. Oh, can I just point Fucking out too hilarious. that I love uh, based on what we kind of talked about. I can't remember what the intelligence score for Ettens was, but I love that it's an it's a plus eight or it's just an eight and a minus one for for uh, for these cyclops because um, you know, like we said, they seem a little bit more civil. So like minus one's not. Not ideal, especially if you're building a character. But at the end of the day, you're not exactly a complete and utter moron, right? Um, you're just, you know, you're not no, really. They're, they're not supposed to average. Be. Um, Ettens is a yeah. six or a minus two. Um, yeah, and and they're not anywhere depicted yeah. as being unintelligent. They're just never yeah, depicted yeah, as I like being that. overly yeah. intelligent. They're the whole race is very mm-hmm. akin to the barbarian class in my eyes. All right, so what do we got for attacks? What can they do when they when we do rouse them? What what can they do to us? Is it a lot? Oh no! They can do some fucking damage. They can do some serious damage. For a CR six creature, I think they're doing probably the most Oof. damage from a CR six creature. So they have a multi attack with uh, mm-hmm. in melee, which they can hit twice with their great club, which is a plus nine to hit. And Oof. a ten foot reach, and they're doing three d eight plus six bludgeoning damage. Damn! 
so there's some fucking power in these creatures. I, I honestly, yeah. at this point, believe that they hit harder than any CR6 I've ever seen. Oof. Yeah, that's that's crazy. You're getting hit twice in a row with that. Uh, man, yeah. With with no disadvantage or anything like that. But uh, from a distance, they have less but more. So it's a plus nine to hit, which you're going to be rolling at disadvantage. So even you know with disadvantage, a plus nine isn't going to do Well, it's much. disadvantage beyond 30 uh, feet. Uh, well, it's their rock attack is within 30 feet. So the minimum range is 30, the maximum is right. 20. So anywhere between 30, uh, like 31 to, to 119 is disadvantage, essentially. I mean, anything beyond 120 is disadvantage to uh, 120 is just redundant at this point. No, beyond 120 it's is is, is impossible. Oh, yeah. Right. So it's 30, right, 120. Right, yeah. So it's 30, it's fine. Between 30, 120, it's disadvantage. Beyond 120, you just can't hit. Yeah. Yeah, okay. you are correct. Uh, and that does 4d10 plus 6 bludgeoning. <clears throat> so a lot of risk, a lot of reward on that. Yeah, for sure. But that is huge. These things hit fucking hard. Yeah. And you got you guys know they hit hard because you were you're an eighth level party and you just recently faced Cyclopes. Um, there were two of them uh, trying to capture another Manticore. So it was two oh, Cyclopes right. and a Manticore. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been yeah. a while. But yeah, and yeah, it's been a while because of COVID. But yeah, just before you guys went into the Dwarven Forge, like you found out how hard they hit. You were probably level seven at that point, and. This was not an easy encounter. Yeah, gnarly. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah, it's it's crazy. Like you know, it's obviously with the Great Club, there's a bit of a better revenge because they got attacked twice. Um, but um, throwing the rock, like you know, you got three D eight plus six or four D ten plus six. You're whew, like that. That average damage in general is like even with the rock, it's it's kind of like equaling uh, to to a degree. Twenty six yeah. damage. Yeah. That's. I mean. Disadvantage isn't that bad when you've got a plus nine to hit. Yeah, and your your max potential damage is like I mean for just for the rock forty six damage like that that could kill a six level. Yeah, damage. Uh, that's awesome. I love that they're you know easy to hit. They have a disadvantage at, at range, which is really cool. Um, so if, if if your character sort of like is able to surmise or, or figure that out, that's uh, that's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah, I really kind of fell in love with these guys while doing mm-hmm. the research. Not only do I love how similar, again, the D&D lore is to the real world lore, showing that they really put in the time and research for yeah. these guys, unlike homunculi and mm-hmm. Yethans, they, uh, they're really accurately depicted in their stat block, but they're accurately depicted in a very, very simple way. Like It's a very simple, very easy-to-run creature for higher-level encounters, but it's still so true to the creature itself, and I really I really appreciate There's beauty in the simplicity here. Uh, yeah, it's great. Um, I feel like we recently covered a, a creature. I'm struggling to remember exactly, but you know, it was, there was a beauty in their simplicity. Maybe it was Yethhound, where it was, it was just very... Yethhounds were pretty complicated. Uh, what, was, what was the one I did before, Homunculus, then? Azers, that 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 was the one. We, yeah. we we found a beauty in their simplicity because we found it so easy to beef them up, uh, and uh, they they didn't have much going. Uh, but it was like what they did have was so easy to adjust to really make them a threat, um, and uh, really make them stand out. And I like that. You know that, that to me that's a yeah. we do sometimes harp on like uh, uh, the uh, how how mundane certain uh, creatures can be. Um, and they're like, oh, that's just a bit boring. But like, you know, a well-built one, uh, it seems pretty obvious to me that, you know, it's well-built when 
when uh, you can just quickly make an adjustment and really uh, rock someone's world or, or, or make them feel the pressure. For sure. Yeah. But in this case, I, I, I really appreciate how uniform they are between, you know, the uh, Homeric Cyclopes, between the lore of the Cyclopes, and how that's all reflected in the stat block. Like, it's just, fuck, it's perfect. It's like having the right amount of salt in a sauce. Like, it's, yeah. <laughs> it lines up and it, it feels good to look at and yeah. read. Yeah, so good. So, have you ever used these guys? Do they have a place in your world? Have you... Um, Run a cyclop? Abs- absolutely no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've never used one. I've never even thought about it. Um, uh, I think I don't know. I I, I guess uh, I remember a time. So when I was in Australia, you know, I spent the one year there, and um, I really dove into five e for a, a good portion of while I was there. I took a lot of time to myself to read through a bunch of things and and try and find inspiration. And I, rem- I remember going to this one cafe in particular and constantly reading the Monster Manual, writing down thoughts. And Etten's was always one that stood out to me. I wrote down a bunch of things on that. And I thought they were really inspirational for like, you know, when we covered it, the episode, Etten's episode, um, how, you know, some really brutal ideas that, I, uh, that uh, came about from reading them. I must have read Cyclops along the way, but I honestly don't remember whatever the 5e lore offered i did not find any inspiration i would say other than just a big beefy bad boy to just slam some people and i i still kind of feel that way as much as as interesting as this episode has been uh, and all of the you know i love the greek uh mythology and lore it always ropes me in um in general i do find them sort of mundane I uh, don't find them to be That's very fair. interesting. The, the actual, the actual, like not nearly as stupid and a bit, a bit more civilized aspect makes them less flavorful as far as inspiration goes. I think. Uh, that oh, being really? said, uh, if I, yeah, I, I, to a to a degree, I, 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 there is a part of me that wants to now also be like, okay, there's room for. There's room for you know the, cre- uh, the the players coming across something that it looks terrifying to start, such as a huge cyclops, but maybe shouldn't be on the defensive or, or, or especially offensive right away, and uh, that that in and of itself could be a really good uh, learning moment, maybe. Uh, that I also think about expectations. Yeah, then I also think about the, the the group that you know I play with uh, that UDM and I, like you said before, like we're just bloodthirsty. You know? <laughs> uh, so a group like that would maybe wouldn't get that subtlety, but th- there there's definitely uh, people that that might, um, and um, and so maybe these guys fit in there somewhere. I feel like if I, I've never even thought about where they would fit in my world. Uh, it's never crossed my mind, um, but were I to take the time, I think I would just create um, something wholly homebrew and 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 deep. I would just go. I would just kind of totally turn them into something of my own. I don't have anything off the top of my head, but I would uh, I would just grab that and be like, okay, let's let's use what little there is and just really turn it into something totally different uh, or, or something totally unexpected. That's that's kind of where I'm sitting right now. Um, what I would do with them, but I don't know what that is yet. I get that. It's it's hard to flex that creative muscle, especially for me right now, being locked in quarantine, not being able to play. Oof, right. 
Um, but I can tell you that in that particular scenario, those two cyclopes that you killed were um, mates who were trying to trap and catch a second manticore <laughs> to help them watch their herd of sheep. Amazing. See? <laughs> but the manticore did not want to be trapped. Right, yeah. And uh, isn't that the, it's the, the beauty and the curse of the DM, right? You have all that, that behind the scenes information um, that uh, will never come to light. Until you start a podcast about it, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that, you know there is a you, you have to wonder like how how do you make more come to light, uh, and it's it, it is really tough. It's really tough without without uh, and and how do you do it with with uh, the various play styles that are available? Um, you know the the style you do as a DM, the style that your players want to play. Like I said, we're bloodthirsty, so it's yeah, it's extra difficult. It must be extra difficult to to get that information relayed. You know, I honestly believe that it's the lore that I write, like that kind of background lore. Mm-hmm. I know that you're going to go after those cyclopes. That that's not for you. That's that's for me, and yeah. I, that's something I made peace with as a DM a long, long time ago. Especially a DM who plays in their own homebrew world. Yeah. So I don't mind that you guys don't go after all of the lore. I just I mind when you don't go after the lore that I fucking dangle right in front of you, and you're like, no, right. let's do this. <laughs> well, so we're this, end the session right there, folks, because yeah. I don't, I don't have that. So this we don't realize that, uh, that that it's being dangled, right? We just there's something yeah. we're, we're expecting something to be, you know, uh, that, that that would grab our attention, like you know, you use this word, and for some reason you you use that word, and that's that's just the what what allows us to lose it. Um, you know, and then I mean, both of us being on both sides of the situation, yeah. you know, it's it's Gift you and get curse. it, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. it's crazy. Uh, it's which, still the best job yeah. that I've ever had. Seriously, yeah, it's uh, it's so rewarding. So, how would you homebrew Cyclops to make them more interesting? Oh, I'd probably give them a second eye. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. That's ridiculous. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was thinking like a one-eyed pince nez or some shit like that. I give him a second eye, and then I and then I I kill it. Uh, they make they, they once they reach uh, of age, they 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 ruin one eye and put an eye patch over it, and they all call themselves Odin's kin. Um, okay. No, I'm into it. Perfect. No. <laughs> I honestly don't know. Um, I feel like I, there's a part of me that feels. Uh, I I think I have to read more into Stone Giants. Um, okay. I feel like I would want to have a relationship or connection with them because I know they're the of of the long list of giants. They are the only ones that aren't evil. I think they're chaotic. They're pretty neutral. chill. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're artists and painters, and they just kind of want to be left alone. Yeah. There's a part of me that wants to to connect them. Uh, but that would take some some time and research, I think. That's fair. You guys also met a stone giant in my campaign. <laughs> Did we? Yeah, he guards the uh, the tunnel entrance to oh. the city that you just left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do remember that. Yeah, okay. He gets paid in paint cans because he, he just <laughs> just paints murals on That's the That's right. Oh, so good. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I think his name was Sako or something like uh, that. Yeah, I remember that now. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck, it's been a while. Yeah, it's been way too long. Uh, uh, I don't think I'd homebrew these guys at all, though. No, I, I really, I really do like them how they are. Yeah. Uh, I, I appreciate their their cultural heritage. Is there more you can reveal to me and how they fit in your world, or is, does it make a difference? No, that, I mean that's really all I've thought of. Is that yeah. they're solitary sheep herders? Yeah, you know, sure. For the most part, I just want manticore pets like that. I mean, that was just those two. I don't have a, a huge overarching view of how they fit into my world. I mm-hmm. think they're kind of like the shunned little brother. Yeah. 
quick to anger yeah kind of thing um so i just think they're kind of like the shun little brother of the giants whereas the giants don't respect them but they're not stupid enough to be Edens or trolls and mm-hmm. i love i love you say shun's a little brother but they're huge like not even yeah. not, not even all giants are huge <laughs> all giants are huge right I, I don't think so i mean i could be wrong but I, i'm pretty uh, sure i'm ready to be corrected i prefer hill and I, fire at the very least are, are large no hill's huge for sure oh no no i don't know fire i think is huge well, that one time we fought a fire, I'm pretty sure it wasn't huge, but... Well, we that's because fu- that was a Pathfinder pawn. Let's be clear about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well. <laughs> uh, let, I, I, I got a giant tab right here. Let's find out. Storm huge, stone huge, fire huge, frost huge, hill huge, cloud huge. Well, I stand corrected. Shortest giant is a hill giant at six feet tall. Damn. 16 feet tall, sorry. So they're four feet taller than the Cyclops. <laughs> All right. So Etten's the only large one, essentially. <laughs> troll. Oh, tro- but they're not giants, are they? Are they? I think so. Are they giant kin? Yeah. Giant subtype? Oh, yeah. Might be. Okay. Uh, let me let me open up that monster menu again, listeners. By Wizards of the Coast. <laughs> <laughs> Good old wizards. Troll are large giants. Oh, they are giants. Okay. So trolls and Etten's. Are our large guys, and everyone else is huge, apparently. Yeah, seems right, that way. I think there's another giant, but I, uh, but I don't know for sure. I think ogres might be giants, but I'm oh, not going to open yeah. the monster menu yeah. again. Yeah, fair enough. We'll get to that soon. <laughs> Very soon. <laughs> and that's your foreshadowing for the day. <laughs> oh. Yep, I guess I guess it's mandatory now. So, what about you, creatures? You got any? Uh, what episode was this? Cyclops 24. <laughs> I just forgot what creature we were doing. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I think uh, we were asking what number. I was like, that's a weird one. Uh, <laughs> Cyclops. Uh, so what about you creatures out there in podcast land? You got any stories for Cyclops that you want to share with us? You can do that by sending us an email at info at encounterthis.ca. You can tweet at us at encounterpod. You can hit us up on Instagram at encounter dot this <laughs> yep that's the one <laughs> or you can join us at our home on the web for encounter this dot ca for any of our back episodes or if you're uh if you like the show and you want to see us keep doing it you can help us keep the lights on by giving us uh heading over to patreon.com backslash encounter this where you can donate to our cause all that money most of that money goes directly into our pockets to help us uh with hosting fees and, and all that. And, and paying for goddamn blackmail stouts before we're sponsored. Oh, God. <laughs> yep. But uh, for $5 a month, I will literally handwrite and mail you a letter anywhere in the world. But the letter will be in English. <laughs> It'll give you direct access to our show notes. So if you want to see what we're recording these shows from, we post that every week. It's just a Word document of all the bullshit we type down. You can, uh, for $10 a month, you can recommend a creature. We've done one already, Nothix by at Boxcar Bakes. And we have another one upcoming from at General Ham Solo on all platforms, which we're going to keep a little tight to the chest. The two most important things are for you to tell a friend about us and a rate and review on Apple Podcasts if you have Apple Podcasts. That is an awkward sentence. <laughs> I like it. I'm just glad I don't have the responsibility to list that shit off. <laughs> I don't know it's how you. Down. I don't know how you got roped into it. It's <laughs> great. Anyway, thank you so so much for listening. 
Uh, see you there, uh, monocular spectaculars. Yep. What he said. 